Life is full of letdowns, and let's hope the sermon is not one of them after, uh, after such an awesome morning full of, just jam-packed full of worship. Man, it's been such a neat morning already. Uh, one of the letdowns I had in life, you, you never come to the realization late in life that something is delicious, and you've missed out on several years of delish, tasting that delicious thing. Can you, do you mind know what I'm talking about? Are you some, or maybe you're somebody that just tries everything, and you're like, no, I know exactly what everything. I, I was a guy that, like, when I was a kid, even, I would look at things and say, looks gross, not going to have it, don't care. You can convince me. It doesn't, you're not going to convince me. I'm not going to eat that. Onions was one of those things for me. I never touched onions. And I think it's because, you know, I ate, like, a McDonald's hamburger one time when I was a kid, and it had those real authentic onions in it, you know? And when—it's a joke. So, and when you take a bite, it just feels like in your mouth you're ripping paper. That's the way that it sounds, and some of you guys are cringing. But I didn't know this until, like— a year or two years ago, that when you grill onions, they're fantastic, okay? And you can saute them, and they are fantastic. And I'm kind of angry about it, because it went like 32 years of my life without knowing that. That's a lot of onions missed out on. And so now, by the way, same story with deviled eggs. Didn't know that they were delicious. I know some of you guys are like, whoa, that's a different story. How did you, I know, it's a miracle. Uh, Really a devastating miracle, in fact. But I'm missing out on lost time now. You know, I think about (laughs) <laughs> grilled onions, you're like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Deviled eggs, grilled onions, missing out on things for a long time and then figuring out later in life that they are beautiful and precious and delicious, fill in the blank with some sort of a description. Something that has long been elite and wonderful that no one has ever really gotten on my level and explained that I would savor it and find it wonderful. Listen, there's a guy in the Bible by the name of Melchizedek. He's one of those guys. You may have never heard that name before. You may have heard that name and simply have no clue where to go with that name, what that name even means. But we're going to look at that name today. And I want you to understand that while it may be foreign to you, may be confusing to you, it's, it could be your grilled onions, okay? Where it's something that's flown under your radar. It's probably his first time ever being compared to food or grilled onions for that matter. But Melchizedek this morning, he shows us a unique portrait of the beauty of Jesus. And that matters. Because of that, I think that he's worth examining so that we can see a unique and beautiful portrait of Jesus. In other words, this morning, we're going to kind of get sort of historical with things. I know it's the perfect message for like following a disciple now weekend. We got a lot of students here. Wonderful, engaging material, right? Yeah, we'll see. But the goal this morning is not a history lesson. It is to admire Jesus by more closely examining someone that helps us to admire him. So that's what we're going to do this morning in Hebrews 7, looking at verses 1 through 10. By the way, there should be a Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one in the chair rack in front of you. You can use that uh, or underneath you, you can use that. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that. That's why it's there for your, for your use, okay? Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10 say this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters. Though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man, he's talking about Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's the Levites. 
but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You see what I mean? <laughs> We're going to kind of get in some weird places, but I'm so excited about this, man. Again, really excited to let you down. Let's, let's see what we got here, though. Hebrews is, first of all, it is a letter, and you see a lot of letters in the New Testament, but it's also a sermon letter. It would be like if someone were to take one of my sermons and they were to break it apart into several months of study, it would be hard for you to get it because it's all cohesive, and the letter of Hebrews is cohesive. And so in a sense, it's weird for me to break apart parts of this. And again, this part is going to be connected to what we talked about last week, and this is going to be connected to what we talk about next week. And so just keep in mind, that's why it's going to be a little bit choppy, is because we're digging into a letter that was meant to be experienced as a whole. In fact, we're revisiting the name Melchizedek because so far the author of Hebrews has kind of danced around that name in chapters 5 and in chapter 6. We left off in chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 and then there was a pause and then he kind of went off on this disclaimer and if you weren't here he just basically said you guys need to get it together wake up grow up and cheer up that's what we said and then he resumes his discussion but let's go back to right before that pause in chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 that say this it says and being made perfect speaking of Jesus he became the source of eternal salvation don't miss the word eternal there to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a couple of words in there that I want to just mention. Two of those are high and priest. He was a high priest, and this is a special office in the people of Israel. And again, the book of Hebrews is called that because it's written to Jewish people. It's not written to you and me. Now, we can certainly glean things from it, but first, we got to read it with first century Jewish eyes and ears as best as we possibly can. And they would have understood very quickly what the term high priest meant. Maybe, maybe with us in our 21st century mindset, when we hear the word priest, we think about uh, someone that, that is a priest today and, and maybe in Catholicism. That word priest, instead of taking your mind there, I want you to just think about the word priest in this sense, that a priest is an intercessor, a mediator. That's what a priest is. Stripping it down to bare bones, a priest is a mediator. Specifically, who needs a mediator? two parties that are in conflict, right? That's obvious. They're, they're, they need mediation for a reason. And so God gave them a priesthood because there was a big problem that needed mediation, right? A conflict, and not just a small conflict, but a cosmic, huge, universal-sized conflict. And that was between a holy, sinless God and you and me, who are not those things, but instead are born into this world with a sin nature. In other words, we are diametrically opposed to holiness. We're at war with God. I want you to understand that, that. Your sin is not a small matter. It is saying, God, this is your way. I'm going the opposite way. And that is militaristically opposed to a holy and peaceable God. And the result of that is that God must pour out punishment on sin. He is a just God. And a good judge punishes the criminal, right? That's us, unfortunately. We're the criminal, and we have a problem called sin. But God gave them, in the place of no peace, he gave them a gift, the priesthood, a mediating presence that could accomplish some sort of shadow of peace. That's the priesthood. And their priesthood was from the lineage of a guy named Aaron, who was close with Moses, but also through a guy named Levi, who is going to be more pertinent to what we're talking about this morning. Levi was sort of the the head of their, that's why you hear the book Leviticus, you know the word, right? It comes from Levi. Uh, the Levites come from Levi. And so this priesthood was given to his descendants, the priesthood. 
This is my attempt at making simple the priesthood, right? Buckle up. Imagine that there is a, there, imagine there being a doomsday button that has to be pressed once a year or else humanity would be destroyed, okay? There's a doomsday button. You got to press it once a year or humanity will be destroyed. And to press it, one sp- special person could go in and press that button. He had to go through a, a special bunch of rituals, then go to a special place and press the special button. And he did buy time, peace. He pressed the button, a year of peace. But really, it wasn't eternal peace. It wasn't final peace. It was a temporary patch. It was buying time, in other words. Did it every year, pressing down this button and then also passing it down to his offspring and their offspring and their offspring forever. That's the priesthood. A doomsday button that God said, you press this and you could have peace for one year, but you got to send somebody back in to do it again. To me, I don't know about you guys, that don't sound like peace. It sounds like a patch, right? That's the priesthood. Now imagine an extra special man coming and breaking the button, but in a good way, installing a new button that only needs to be pressed one time forever and accomplish permanent and lasting peace. This is Jesus, okay? A system that doesn't work, that only buys time, Jesus comes and revisits the system, fulfills it, and makes it perfect and better. By the way, that's also the plot of the second season of the ABC hit drama Lost, If you've ever seen it, you get the joke. If you don't, then you don't. I'm sorry. We have a cosmic conflict between us and a holy God. There is no peace apart from God intervening and doing something. He gave them a priesthood, a temporary patch. The Levitical priesthood could never satisfy, bought them time. But Jesus did what the Levitical priesthood could never do. And that is forever rescue and forever bring peace. Amen. Amen. Praise God for that. No more need for a human priest because Jesus brings us near to God. That which was far off, he has brought near. It says that his priesthood is a special kind of priesthood. And it's after the order of that guy again, Melchizedek. He's the reason that it can be. And we just read this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, but I'll read it again. Being made perfect, he became the source of, again, I told you don't miss this word, eternal salvation to all who obey him. Designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Eternal salvation. Then in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, right before this sort of resumption back into this conversation, he says, chapter 6, 19 and 20, says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, listen, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The high priesthood of Jesus may be something that you've never given much thought to, but check this out. The author of Hebrews considered it of such importance that he could say that it is the anchor of the soul. That's a big deal. So it must be pretty important. Specifically, that Jesus is a special kind of high priest, one that lasts forever. Now remember, this is written to Jews who clung to a system of belief, of living that could not save them. And certainly, you can understand, thousands of years they clung to this Levitical priesthood. And then suddenly, Jesus comes on the scene and says, don't look to that priesthood anymore, look to me. That'd be a hard switch, would it not? That'd be a hard switch. Some of you guys have church one way for a long time, and then suddenly some young pastor comes, and he's got all these ideas, and he's like, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm behind you, but it's going to take me some time. Now imagine that for thousands of years, okay? This is the situation in the book of Hebrews, and it's, and it's difficult for us to put our mindsets there, but they were having a hard time with this, of letting go with the priesthood that was their gift from God and moving on to something different. But the most important thing is that the author of Hebrews is writing to them saying, you've got to move on. 
Because that priesthood is a patch, and it will never permanently satisfy. It will never give you lasting peace. But you know who can? The one after the order of Melchizedek. So in light of that, I want to break down who this guy was, what he did, and why it's so important. So first is this, what he did. If you're taking notes, you'll see that on the screen behind me. What did he do? This is sort of just a real quick summary, and this is crazy. For somebody that's so important, you know how many times he's mentioned in the Bible? Twice. <laughs> Two times. Uh, once in Genesis and once in the book of Psalms. And really, I would say the most important one is the one that we're going to talk about this morning. I say two times, three times counting Hebrews, but two other times in Genesis and uh, here in Hebrews and in, in Psalm 110. So first of all, the very first word of, of chapter seven is noticeable, and it's four in the ESV. Four, because this Melchizedek, four. The reason why Jesus' forever priesthood comes from Melchizedek is why it is forever, and that's where he begins. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. This is what's happening. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of part of everything. Now, again, this is written to Jewish people. And Genesis 14 was a long, long, long time ago. But they remembered it, and they knew exactly what this story was. And so the author assumes that they know the story. But you may not. And so let's talk about, real quickly, what this story is. Abraham was faithful, and they knew that, man. They knew that Abraham was their guy. He was their patriarch, that they don't exist without Abraham and being faithful to God. He was faithful, and God was with Abraham, and Abraham was with God. God had made him a promise of big things that God would do in and through his family. Abraham had a nephew whose name was Lot. You may have heard of Lot. Lot was taken captive from his land by an alliance of four kings, and Abraham led an army against those kings to defeat them, plunder them, and retrieve his nephew. And I'm really going quickly through this story, but he was successful. He was successful that God granted him that victory. He rescued his nephew Lot and took a huge plunder from his enemies. And Abraham knew as a faithful man that God had given him the victory. Now, this is where Melchizedek enters. As Abraham returned from victory, he met Melchizedek for a victory celebration, a sort of blessing of celebration. This is sort of like um, Star Wars Episode Four, the first Star Wars. I just figured I'd just throw an image up there so you guys can just see where my mind goes when I read these things. You might remember this scene. I know it's really low quality. The movie was too. Uh, not in quality, but in quality. You know what I mean? So this is the end of the movie. If you've never seen it, this is a spoiler. This is a pretty big spoiler. They win. And um, at this moment, you can see Princess Leia. I'm not going to get into it. I know it sounds really nerdy, but she's in the middle back there, and she's on a throne. She's on, on a platform, and they are coming in as victors, and she's welcoming them as victors, and she gives them a blessing, okay? She's putting a, a medal around their necks as a, as a war victory, a star war. Oh, that's where they get the name. Crazy. So, they, not really, because they never go to a star. Anyway, we won't go there. So, she gives them a blessing, and they come to her for the blessing, okay? And so she bestows that on them, and I want you to have that sort of, by the way, you can't see it in this picture, but there's a bunch of people there too. For all intents and purposes, it makes perfect sense that Abraham's army was there, seeing this blessing bestowed on him, a victory celebration for the love. Please take that down. It's very distracting uh, to me. I'm thinking about Star Wars. Think about Jesus. This is where it comes from, Genesis 14, 18 through, 18 through 20. It says, and Melchizedek, again, Genesis 14, 18 through 20, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is the celebration. He was a priest of, most, of God most high, and he blessed him. Notice the word blessed there. And said, blessed be Abraham, or Abram in the Old Testament. His name would later be Abraham. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, God is. And blessed be God most high, 
for he has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, here's his response, gave a tenth of everything. All that spoil, all the things that he had gained from that victory, he gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek. He's met with a victory meal, bread and wine. He's then given a blessing that God had blessed. He'd highly favored Abraham very clearly. God had brought him victory, and God was to be thanked. In other words, we bless God. We thank God. That's why we say the blessing. It's not because you're giving some power over the food that you're about. You're thanking God for it. And so what's happening is that God is giving a blessing, and Abram is lifting God up and saying, thank you for the blessing. This is what's happening in Genesis 14. And Abraham's response is one of agreement. He tithes. He takes a tenth. That's what that word means. Tithe means tenth. He takes a tenth of all these things that he has, and he gives it to God. And here's why. Because he knows who did it. Okay. He knows where it came from. He knows who brought the victory. And so he says, God, this belongs to you. Thank you. The priestly role, being that of Melchizedek in the passage, again, is a mediating role, going between two parties. And what's happening is Melchizedek appears to Abraham and says, God wants me to give you something, a blessing. He says, you are so favored. Man, God has done so much. It's so clear that he has done it. Receive the blessing. Mediator, taking it from God and saying, here it is, Abraham. And then Abraham says, I want you to, to receive this offering. It's going to God. And as a mediator, I'm giving it to you saying, I hear that and I thank God for what he has done. It's a gift of agreement and offering. Mediation. When I was in middle school, that was before uh, cell phones. It was before social media. And um, some of you guys were there with me. And some of you guys are like, there was a time before social media? What? There was. Uh, they all said VCRs. And it was really a, a season. So, um, yeah, why do we do this, right? So, I remember in middle school, uh, I was talking with this girl. Can you date in middle school? I don't think so. But we were doing some form of that. And we were talking. And uh, before you had texting and stuff, we passed notes. And they would be folded a certain way. And you'd have like fancy, colorful writing on the outside, and you would decorate them. It was an interesting time for sure. And we would pass notes, and a lot of the time, it's like, hey, she saw that, that you, were, you were hugging a girl at a bowling alley, and um, she is unhappy about that. I take this note from her. She wants me to give this to you, mediating. I'd read the note and say, man, you need to tell her to back off because that girl was my sister. So um, how about you mediate that and go tell her that this is nothing and that we have no reason to be in conflict, but we should have peace. And that's kind of the way that the story goes. But that's the role of a mediator, right? The role of a mediator is to take two parties that are in conflict and bring peace between them. And we see this in our world and also in God's word. What's happening here, and this is Caleb's paraphrase, Melchizedek appears between the two parties that are in conflict and says, bro, God wanted me to tell you that he just blessed you big. And then Abram said, I know, bro, take this tithe of what he's given me so he knows I recognize that and thank you. They're just broing each other is what I pick up on this. But recognizing God has brought this to me, I want you to bring this to God, a, a mediator. And that's exactly what happened. An interesting culture, no doubt. But I want you to see that's what happens in the passage. Now, now let's see why it matters. Who, who is this guy? The reason we had to talk about this is because it provides a frame for, framework for what happens next. So who was he? That's the second thing. Who was uh, Melchizedek? This is interesting. Outside of Jesus and Melchizedek, no one in all of Scripture is identified as both a king and a priest. How about that? Okay. Outside of Melchizedek and Jesus, no one in all of Scripture is identified as both king and priest. That seems recognizable and, and notable, right? The second part of verse 2 says this. He, that's Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. That's what the word means. You'll notice on the screen behind me, when, go and put that number two point back up there. 
I broke the, the name apart. Yeah, uh, Malachi and, and Zedek is the way that I kind of broke that up. I won't get into the technicalities of the etymology of the Hebrew language and stuff, but simply put, the name Melech means king. The, name, uh, the, word, the word Melech means king. The word Zadok means priest. My nephew's middle name, they live in the Middle East. His, his middle name is Melech. It's king. And so his name literally means Melech Zadok, king righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. Not saying that he's perfect, but the insinuation was that he was a good king. And this is by nature of who he is, right? His name. He's also identified as the king of Salem, meaning his name means king of righteousness, but the place that he hails from is a place called Salem. In fact, some people think it's Jerusalem, the city of peace. Jerusalem, right? The city of peace. Where does Melchizedek come from? Somewhere called Salem, meaning that he's not only the king of righteousness, he's also the king of peace. And it's not a coincidence that a priest's role, a mediator's role, is to be a righteous and moral man who mediates peace between God and man. I mean, it couldn't be more perfect, right? The way that it all breaks down is perfectly in sync. But the next part's where it gets kind of interesting. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And this is where he's a little bit different from the other priests that they would talk about. Some have suggested that this is to be taken literally and that he is the pre-incarnate son of God that is appearing to Abraham. And look, that's possible. I'm going to argue against that and I'm going to explain why. Again, entirely possible, but it doesn't change the meaning of the passage. But I'm going to argue against that. And part of it is because of what it says at the end of verse 3 when it says, but resembling the son of God. Resembling. That sounds like he's not, but it's a very close shadow to what the Son of God is. And so I think that resembling is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. He could have, if it was the Son of God, I think that he could have said that, but he didn't quite say it that way. And so I'm going to argue against that. More likely, I think that this is not to be taken literally, but that he appears suddenly in Genesis 14, and then he just disappears from the story altogether. Like I said, this is the main reference. And then Psalm 110 that talks about this moment over again. But when it says that he has no father, mother, no genealogy, it means there's no mention of those things. He's dropped in, and then he's suddenly pulled out. No mention. He comes and he goes very quickly. Altogether. The meaning, I think, is this. That in the text, he's given no father or mother, no genealogy, no beginning, no end. And I think the author is drawing a symbolic conclusion based on Genesis silence that he has no genealogical qualifications. Priests had to. Okay. In fact, you go read the book of Nehemiah. There were priests that wanted to be, guys that wanted to be priests, and they said, sorry, you can't because you don't have genealogical requirements that are documentable. This is a big deal. And so it's interesting that this guy has no genealogical requirements, and yet he is affirmed as a priest. On the other hand, you can think about Levi's priesthood that was later given by God. Levitical priests had to have genealogies that were listed. His was not. Leviticus or, or Levite's priesthood was based entirely on family descent. They had to prove it. Melchizedek, in contrast, had nothing to do with family descent. Why does that matter? Because it means that his priesthood was assigned by God. It was assigned by God, not by man, but assigned by God. And this is where the comparisons to Jesus really begin. Jesus is qualified as high priest, not because of his genealogy, but because he's got assigned. He has no beginning and no end. And specifically, he has no end which is where we're going to get into some of that forever eternal talk. This is where it gets, where the rubber hits the road. The big thing here is that every Levitical priest that has ever lived is in the dirt. Okay? Every Levitical priest that has ever lived is in the dirt. Not mediating the God and human conflict, but they're dead. But Jesus is alive. And this is where they differ. 
He has a different sort of priesthood. He's forever mediating that God and human conflict. And see, the problem with this audience is that they had been introduced to Jesus' priesthood, but whether it be tradition or comfort or any number of things, they were returning to the old because something greater had come. The author of Hebrews is saying, look beyond the old. Something greater is here. By the way, that's what we titled this whole look in the book of Hebrews, greater. And that's what he's been trying to do this whole time is show them the greatness of Jesus. Something greater has come. I remember when cell phones were sort of first coming out, and this is before iPhones. I mean, this is talking about that Nokia that you can't destroy. You guys remember that? It's impenetrable, and it was uh, infallible, the Nokia phone was. And um, I remember with the cell phone transition that people started to slowly disconnect their landlines, and some of you guys are still holding on, and whew, man, still clinging to that old, old way, man. I remember my mom and dad coming to the realization, like, you know what? We should probably disconnect this landline. Because why do we even have it? We're paying, you know, an extra 30 bucks, 40 bucks for something that our phones already do. Um, We got more robots calling our home than humans calling our home, which is still the case today. I don't know. It seems like something else to consider. And also it's immobile. You can't take it with you. And so anyway, there was something greater that came along where we as a society began to see this is arbitrary and this probably needs to go. And this is sort of uh, kind of some of you guys just need to let it go. Like, be like Anna and Elsa and just let the landline go. Okay, let it go. <laughs> Why did I say that? I had it written down and I just can't. I mean, <sighs> anyway, what the author is saying is that it isn't about the old priesthood being outdated. Please hear that. It wasn't about the old priesthood being outdated. It's that it does nothing. Okay. It didn't do anything. But point to the high priest who would do everything. It was patchwork. It didn't do anything. It pointed to a different button that would permanently satisfy the greatest need that humankind would ever have. And that's the third thing, which is why he's great, because of it, why he's great, which we're going to see why this is also why Jesus is great, why he's great. He's a type, he's a shadow that we see Jesus in. Again, remember, written to Jews. They put Abraham on the highest possible pedestal. Now, when we say why he's so great, we're talking about Melchizedek, not Abraham. But they did put Abraham on a very, very high pedestal. They called him the patriarch. And listen, they would say, we would have nothing. We would be nothing if not for Abraham. That's high praise. And if you think that that is sort of an archaic mentality, take it from an Alabama alum, We give great praise to the people that have gone before us that have done big things. They still are like bowing to the statue of Bear Bryant outside of the stadium. I mean, it's crazy. And Nick Saban, who even knows what that's going to look like? I'm just saying, you may think that's an archaic mentality, this patriarchy, and that may have a bad taste in our mouth. But for them, they looked at Abraham as the utmost of legacy, the utmost of heroic figures. They would not have a nation if not for his faithfulness. He had a special legacy of faith, of promise from God, of blessing from God. And also of recognizing where all those things came from. Calling someone the patriarch in their culture was a statement of utmost honor, not just something tossed around loosely. And that's what makes verse 4 so stunning. The patriarch. Look what it says in verse 4. This is amazing. See how great this man, that's Melchizedek. See how great Melchizedek was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham gave to him, not the other way around. Abraham gave to him. He placed himself under the honor of Melchizedek, the priest, the king of peace, the king of righteousness. Down in verse 7 it says, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Meaning, if Melchizedek gave Abraham a blessing, that means Melchizedek was greater than him. Think about how great Abraham is, the author of Hebrews is saying. Melchizedek is even greater than that. Unfathomable, man. What a statement to make. 
And if Abraham saw the greatness of Melchizedek's priesthood as opposed to Levi's, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you should too. Look at verses 5 through 7, and this is where we're going to get interesting. And I'm going to put a diagram on the screen in just a second to explain it, because it's going to get us a little bit lost, I think. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his, descendant, have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. All right, I've got a Melchizedek diagram. Go ahead and put the first part up there, just Melchizedek's name. All right, so this is what we're talking about. The king of righteousness, the king of peace, uh, and the, the, the high, this priest that God has assigned. We've got a few slides here that I want to help you guys to see. First of all, go ahead and put the next one up there. That Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That's what's being said in verse 7, right? He is superior to him. He blessed him. And also in verse 4, as mighty as the wonderful patriarch was, he gave a blessing to Melchizedek. Or he gave a tithe, I should say. He gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And so what you want to see here is that Melchizedek is very clearly outlined as greater than Abraham. As stunning as that sounds. And it's because where the tithe, the direction of that tithe went and where the blessing went, which was down, trickled down. Throw the next thing up there. Abraham had sons. He had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had a kid named Jacob. And this is where you, you've seen that name a lot. Jacob, his name would be changed to Israel, and Israel's name is still around today. It's a whole country, you know what I'm saying? So this is a big deal. These guys had sons. Isaac was Abraham's son, and then Jacob came. And then Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons. Go ahead and put that up there too. The 12 sons, I'm not going to go all their names, but one of them was Levi, and the other 11 are on the other side of that diagram. Now remember, using the logic at the top, I know this is really getting mathematical on us. Stick with me, okay? The one giving the tithes is inferior, is under the one who is receiving them, and who also is going to give the blessing. So real quickly, just see that Levi is greater than his brothers, not because he's like higher and mightier than them, but he's given a position of honor, okay? And so very quickly, just want you to see that that 10% from his brothers to him, from their, all their descendants to him, all those descendants that are still around, by the way, today, all those descendants, it means that Levi's priesthood was special. Now here's what's being said in these verses. I'll tell you what, let's go to verse 8 through 10, and then we'll come back for one more slide in a second. Verses 8 through 10 say this, sort of puts it in perspective. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's the bottom of that, that diagram a second ago, received by mortal men, meaning that those 11 brothers and all their descendants give to Levi's household. That's one case. But in another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. That's Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's priesthood is different. Whereas those guys are buried, they're in the dirt. The other guy has no beginning and no end. Keep going, verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes, through Abraham. He's sort of inferring something here. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, throw the last one up there. Here's what that last verse means. It means that everybody that came after Abraham was under Melchizedek too. That's as simple as I can put it. Everybody that came after. And you can follow the logic now. What he's saying is that who can stand to bless the most blessed man on the planet in all our history? Who can stand to bless him? Melchizedek can. So why emphasize his greatness so much so the readers will know that the Levitical priesthood was always meant to give way to something greater? And if it hasn't clicked yet, this passage is not primarily about the greatness of Melchizedek. It's about the greatness of the one to whom he points, Jesus. And so as we wind down, I want to give you some very pointed application a couple more things I want to put on the screen. Number one 
is that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, and therefore he's greater than lots of things. Again, if Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, greater than the priesthood, all that stuff, then Jesus is greater than that stuff too. And so number one, I want us to see that Jesus is the blesser. He's the blesser. He's a greater blesser than Melchizedek was even. A greater blesser. Again, Jesus, like Melchizedek, is greater. He's greater than, number one, just like Melchizedek was, he's greater than Abraham's patriarchy, which would be crazy to say to someone in that context. Greater than Abraham's patriarchy. You see, Jesus distributes, not receives, the blessing. Jesus is a distributor of blessing, not a recipient, just like Melchizedek. He distributes the blessing. He doesn't receive it. And if he's greater than Abraham, he's also, number two, greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go to the next part in just a moment. Greater than the Levitical priesthood. And this is how we know that. The Levitical priesthood was exhausting, and it was temporary. It was once a year, a button that they pressed that never really did anything except patch their biggest problem. It was never saving, only waiting, buying time. And it was also a priesthood of mortality. Those guys were in the dirt, man. They died, but Jesus is greater than them. He's a greater blesser. It's because he's a priest of a different order. Where they were priests of the Levitical priesthood, Jesus is a priest of a different kind. By the way, Jesus is also a king of righteousness. Jesus is also the king of peace. Isaiah calls him the prince of peace. He's the king of righteousness because he was without sin. He's the king of peace because he brought peace through his own blood. 2 Corinthians 5.21 unbelievable verse. For our sake, this is king of righteousness, king of peace material right here. For our sake, he made him to be sin. The righteousness one, the righteous one, right? He made him to be sin, not righteous, but be sin, who knew no sin. He was righteous so that in him we might become the righteousness of God because of him, because he gives us righteous standing. He's without beginning without end. He's a high priest forever, forever interceding. That's what that means. High priest forever, it means that he's always standing between. Please hear this, man. This is the gospel right here, y'all. He's always standing between holy God and sinful man, coming between the two and saying, you have no business being together, but because of what I'm doing, my intermediator, my mediating presence, I'm bringing these two parties together. A great verse to keep in mind is 1 John one, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John 2, 1 says, <clears throat> my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the king of righteousness, I would say. An advocate. Do you know what an advocate is? An advocate is somebody that fights for someone else because that person can't fight for themselves. You see, Jesus stands with the holy judge of the universe, the Father. He's just. He gets the punishment right, the sentence right every time. And that's bad news for you and me. As a just God, that's terrible news for us as sinners. But Jesus is our advocate. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross in our place, a substitution. That in him, because we can be draped in the righteousness of Jesus, that judge looks at us And if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, no more does the Father see us and see sin. He sees us and sees perfection. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, church. And so he is a greater blesser. He's also a greater blessing. He's a greater blessing, which is the second thing. A greater blessing. Where Melchizedek distributed bread and wine to celebrate. You know, and I just need to pause while you're writing. Just hold on a second. I really need you to hear this next part. This just rocks my world. 
when Abram came back from, from victory, Melchizedek distributed bread and wine to celebrate victory. Jesus distributed bread and wine as a foretaste of victory. That is just beautiful, man. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He is the one who stands to mediate the unmediatable. I just made that one up. And where Melchizedek brought bread and wine to celebrate the victory that had happened, y'all, Jesus distributed bread and wine. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. He distributed bread and wine at the last table to celebrate the fact that he was about to go win. Not lose. His death was our victory. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That means we sinned against him, not against a law, but against a God. It says that by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that's the wrath of God. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, that's victory speech, over them in him. Guys, your trespass leads to condemnation, but the blessing that is given from our priest king is victory. And it's victory over sin and over death. Students, listen. You guys just got done with Disciple Now weekend, right? I've been, on, I've been a Disciple Now weekend. I was saved at a Disciple Now weekend. And I know that you go into that room and it's, it's, it's wonderful. And there's loud singing and, and wonderful singing, beautiful singing, because we're praising God together. And you're around your peers. And so you get sort of caught up in such a neat moment, caught up in a good way, in a neat moment that God is working in your midst. And it's so neat to see that, but I want to give you a warning. And here's the warning. Don't fall prey to your emotions. Don't fall prey to your emotions because I know that that's a contagious environment. I know that when you see your friends with tears streaming down their faces, you want to have tears streaming down your faces. I know when you see your friends running to the front of the sanctuary, you kind of hold hands and link arms and run together. And I'm not saying that God can't use that. Praise God that he does. Praise Jesus. Some of you guys, God rocked your world this weekend, didn't he? But I want to warn you, your victory is not accomplished by your emotions or by a guitar riff. It's not accomplished by something the preacher said. It's not accomplished by some fantastical emotional moment. The only reason that you can have hope in this life and in the next is that Jesus purchased your victory. You stand opposed to a holy God and there's no emotional triumphant moment that can change that. Jesus can. And so I just want to give you a warning. Don't fall so prey to your emotions because here's what happens. You get on the spiritual high and then you go back to school and you go back around your peers that weren't there and they drag you away from the emotions. At the end of the day, emotions are fickle. Emotions are sandy beaches. You douse them with water and they're gone. There's something greater than your emotions, and that's the work of Jesus. And my prayer is that this weekend you understand your emotions will never save you, but God can. Our victory, and church, this is for all of us. Our victory is purchased not because of some mountaintop moment we had, it was accomplished because of another mountaintop that Jesus carried a cross that belonged to you and me, and he died on that cross, a death that you and I deserved, and he died for our sins. And here's the kicker. He didn't stay in the grave. 
He resurrected triumphantly that while he has gone as our forerunner, that he has been dead and resurrected, just like we celebrated right here in the baptismal waters, that we may go from death to life. Praise Jesus. That's our victory. It's victory over sin and death, and it's victory from God. And guys, I want to show you one more thing. Abraham responded to the blessing by giving a tenth of everything. And we respond in giving ourselves. His response should be our response. And you're thinking, oh, here we go. Pastor's going to talk about money. I knew if I came to church that way, he'd get there. No, no, no. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about worship. God has given you a victory. Will you be a worshiper? We're in the business, not of making converts, but of making worshipers. I'm in the business, not of preaching a moral message, but of building worshipers. Because God has given you rescue. Abraham knew that. He said, yep, it's from God. I want you to give this to God because I'm thanking him for it. You are here today to praise God, reciprocating what he's already done to you. He's given you victory. And so reciprocation means you say, thank you, God. And yeah, you know what? It does mean that you praise him with your giving, financially speaking. It does mean that maybe you need to give to your church. Definitely, you need to support the movement of the church. You need to be a financial giver, no doubt about it. But it means way more than that. You need to be a worshiper, man. And you need to worship not just with your wallet. You need to worship with your voice. Worship takes sacrifice. That's what, that's what a tithe is. It's doing without and saying, God, I trust that you're going to sustain me. I'm going to put myself out there and trust that you're going to sustain me. You know what's worshipful? You know what's sacrificial? Singing in church. Uncomfortable maybe for some of you guys. I ain't got much of a voice. I don't care. God doesn't either. He cares about what's in your heart. And it may cost you something to cry out your voice and say, I'm going to praise God no matter what happens around me. That costs a little bit of something. You know why? Worship does. I'm not much of a leader. I don't know how to lead a Bible study in my home. I don't know how to teach my kids the Bible. Figure it out. Talk to the pastor. Talk to somebody. Because leadership and worship in your home means sacrificing your preference for the good of others and for the glory of God. Worship takes sacrifice sacrificial serving. Some of you guys say, well, I don't know where I fit in. Figure it out. You are to serve in the church not because of other people. You're serving the church because you got to put away, aside yourself and say, I'm going to sacrifice and say, I'm going to worship God by serving in this church. Join the church. For goodness sake, it's not about checking a bunch of boxes. Become a worshiper. And there's so many ways to apply that message. Don't be a coward at work. Be a worshiper. Don't be a punk with your friends. Be a worshiper. You're to be a worshiper in everywhere that you go. Just like Abraham, he recognized who gave him the victory and said, as a result, I'm going to praise God with it. Can we do that? God didn't bring you victory for you to hoard the spoils. He gave it to you so that you may worship him with it. And the author is simply saying, do you guys, the readers, want to attach yourself to priests who die Or to a great high priest who has conquered death and lives forever. See, they should not run to what cannot make them right with God when they have been given a greater hope. That's the last thing. Some of you guys will leave this place. And you'll run back to your morals. You'll run back to your box checking. You'll run back to trying harder this week because you really blew it last week. You'll run back to faking it whenever you come in here. You'll run back to pretending in church. Listen, this is what they were doing. The principle is not priesthood, this priesthood. The principle is stop clinging to what can't save you. Latch on to what can. When you come into this place, you do not come as someone trying to pretend that they got their life together. We come here to say we don't. And to cry out, God, because I don't have my life together, I am praising you because you have put me back together. 
Guys, this is a hospital, not a museum. And we praise God, the one that restores our souls. And if you're here today, first of all, I want you to realize that everyone in this place is absolutely fractured, desperate for salvation. And apart from God, we have no peace with God. But we come into this place celebrating, and you can celebrate too. You can rejoice because you don't have to achieve victory on your own. God has achieved it for you. If you will place your faith and trust in him, confess your sin and say, God, I need salvation, then today can be the day of salvation. Let's pray and thank God for that. And if he's moving in your heart to do that, do it today, man. Do it today and stop hardening your heart. Let's pray.